this retreat, I'd like to start to speak about a perspective of practice that is really central to the whole process, and that is healing. I was told today by a friend visiting that uh, the Roshi in New York City, Tetsugan Sensei, who runs a center in the Bronx, a Zen center, will be offering a retreat in April for a small number of selected students on homelessness. And his Zen Center's ministry, in a way, is to serve the poor and to bring practice in a way of service to those who need it. This particular retreat, for only a dozen selected people, will take place in the Bowery in New York. Um, and you will meet there with other people wearing whatever suitable clothes you bring. And you are allowed to bring five dollars, and that's all. And um, they will sit three times a day at designated times at a particular park. And for those five days, you will live on the streets as a homeless person, um, or go to homeless shelters as a homeless person might, and do your meditation in the middle of it all looking for a way to find strength and wakefulness and compassion in the midst of the world itself. I often begin this talk about healing by reminding people that both the Buddha and Jesus were considered great healers great physicians, healers of the heart and the spirit, as well as the body. During one visit that I made in Vietnam to a monastery in the Mekong Delta during the war time, I went to visit a famous old Vietnamese monk, the coconut monk, he was called. And the day that I arrived at his monastery, we went by bus and then by boat. There was a lot of helicopters and firefights. It was an active war zone. And after arriving at the monastery, they took us to the hill, which was on the backside of this island in the delta. And there was a great 50 or 60 foot tall statue of Buddha standing there, smiling with all the helicopters in the distance around him. And right next to him was a 50 or 60 foot tall statue of Jesus. And they had their arms around each other's shoulders. It was a very powerful image. I still hold it. To see them holding one another's brothers and smiling, that smile of tremendous compassion in the midst of the war, in the midst of that sorrow. As we begin to practice together, we can sense that meditation and spiritual work is to bring a heartfelt awareness to our life. And out of this, there comes a deep healing, an awakening or opening, which we could call healing. This healing arises when we listen deeply, when we connect our life, our breath, our body, our movements with our hearts. In the trip that I spoke of last night that our family took to Bali and Thailand this, earlier this year, 
When we were staying in Bali, my daughter Caroline um, decided to study Balinese dance because we were going out and seeing all of these different Balinese plays and dances, Ramayana and so forth. And a lot of children dance in Bali. So we found a teacher for her and there were all these other five and six-year-olds who were dancing. She took a series of lessons. And then as we were getting ready to leave Bali, her teacher asked if she would like to do a recital of what she'd learn. So we went over to his house where he had a stage and these other people around and it was time for her recital and I had my camera, I was gonna document this, right? Um, and they started to dress my daughter up, um, six-year-old, and they put on a silk skirt and this kind of gold um, waistband and then they wrapped her in about 15 layers of silk sari. And then they put makeup. They changed her hair from kind of light color to dark and put, uh, you know, different eyebrows and makeup, enough makeup for a six-year-old girl to die for. It was so much makeup. She loved it, you know, and, and uh, golden flowers out of her hair. And they were going on and on with this, you know, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. They're still fixing her up. And I'm getting kind of impatient. Here's dad, you know, ready to take pictures and all right, let's get the show on the road. And they keep making her up and fixing her and putting more gold bracelets on. And finally I looked at what was going on and I realized that they were giving her the same kind of attention as a six-year-old that they would give to any other artist in their culture. They don't consider children children exactly in Bali, they consider them small people. Um, and they consider any artist as someone who is performing for the gods. So if you are six years old, or if you're the princess of Ubud and you're the greatest dancer and singer in Bali, you get the same attention before a performance, the same silk and the same makeup and the same gold. And here was the six-year-old girl who was going to go out and perform for the gods. And they took an, almost an hour to make her up, which is a long time for a six-year-old, in case you don't remember. Um, and she loved it. And she went out and did the most beautiful dancing she'd ever done, and everyone watched her, and it was just wonderful. And in it, I got a sense of the kind of care and respect that can be given to a child or to ourselves, or to anything that we care about. And what beauty comes out of that kind of respect. I mean, think about it. Think of what kind of people would grow up in a culture where you are held as a child with that kind of respect. We've lost that in our times here, as you probably have noticed. Thomas Merton asked a Zen novice that he ran into, who'd completed a couple of years of novitiate training in a Zen monastery, what he'd learned. Did he have satori, enlightenment, some special realization or something? What did he learn in his first couple of years? And the novice said, I learned how to open and close doors. To really open the door and how to really close a door. And Katagiri Roshi, a wonderful Zen teacher who died recently in this country. A friend of mine visited him shortly before he died and uh, took with them a, a, a person who asked him if he could tell 
heard the essence of Zen practice, the kind of question you ask a Zen master when they're dying. And he picked up the cup that was next to his bed, and he kind of tossed it down on the table, and he said, you can do things like this, or he picked it up off the table again and held it in his two hands and placed it down really beautifully and with care. He said, or you can do them like that. And that was his teaching. This kind of listening, this kind of respect, is the ground for the healing that we all search for in our life. From Don Juan, he says, look at every path closely and deliberately. Try it as many times as you think necessary, and then ask yourself and yourself alone one question. My benefactor told me about it once when I was young and my blood was too vigorous to understand it, but now I understand it. I will tell you what it is. Does this path have a heart? If it does, it is good. If it doesn't, it is of no use. So this is the kind of respect or attention that we begin with to heal in our life. And as we do, as we pay attention and listen with respect to our breath, to our walking, to our eating, we discover that the healing of spiritual life follows the four foundations of mindfulness that the Buddha spoke of, the four areas of mindfulness, of the body, of feelings in the heart, of the mind, and then of the process of life or nature, the laws, the dharma. Whether you're a new or an old student at this retreat, we begin to sit, and you can sense yourself reconnecting with the body. There's a settling down process that happens in the first day. I'm sure you mostly could feel it. The breath starts to get a little quieter. Sometimes it gets very soft, and you have to bring a careful and soft, respectful kind of attention to feel, subtle attention, to feel that little bit of movement of the life breath in the body. How to bring that attention to a place where you're sensing it without trying to manipulate or control it too much. Just letting it be soft and listening more carefully. And then you see as you feel the breath and the mind goes away that what you're asked to do really is to come back over and over. It's not just to sense the breath, but to come back a thousand times or a hundred thousand times You wander away and bring your heart and your mind back again. Here we are, the next moment, the next breath. The image traditionally is of training a puppy. This little puppy runs around, you put it down, stay. Does it listen? We all know the answer to that. Gets up, runs around, makes a mess, clean it up a little bit, bring it back, stay again, over and over again. You don't want to beat the puppy. It's not a lot of fun for the puppy, and I don't think you enjoy it very much either. But it's recognizing that we've gone away and discovering that we can come back and reconnect with the body again and again. What we're after, you all have heard of -of out-of-the-body experiences. What we're after is something more unusual and important in our culture called an in-the-body experience, right? That line from James Joyce where he writes, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. (laughs) 
And so the first ground of spiritual life is simply to come back and be here in this physical body. And as we do, we encounter pains, some of it because of an uncomfortable posture that we're not used to, or you know, sometimes a signal that there's something we need to pay attention to, but most often the pains we feel as we sit, our shoulders hurt, our back hurts, our jaw hurts, is simply that tension that we carry in our bodies below the level of our awareness. And as we sit, all the patterns of holding begin to show themselves, reveal themselves. Those of you who've heard this talk before may do well just to be reminded of this point anyway. It's not that you're doing anything wrong, you know, or that you hiked up a mountain with a big backpack that it should hurt. It's just that weeks and months or years of contracting when we're afraid and reacting in different ways, we stash it in patterns in our body. And gradually, these patterns begin to show themselves, knots start to open. And all that was held there, the feelings, the physical sensations, sometimes memories, they start to release. And in it, it's sometimes painful. There's a very deep physical opening that happens as we sit, sometimes just in the release over the days and week or more of our sitting together, sometimes very powerfully rushes of energy, spontaneous movement, kundalini kinds of things, which is simply another word for the opening of our energy body, a deep transformation that's physical in meditation. And what we're asked to do is to honor this body we've been given, to re-inhabit it, to heal it, to touch it with our attention wisely. And as you do, when the pain comes, when we continue in the next couple of days opening the field of attention, you want to allow that to be part of the meditation, to name it softly, hot, cold, tension, tingling, pain, whatever the sensation is, naming it softly, tension, tension, giving it a lot of space, letting it get stronger or weaker or open or, or become, turn into fire. Let it do what it needs to, to open. Sometimes it'll go away. Sometimes it will stay the same. Sometimes it will get worse. That's not your business. Your job is to sit and keep your heart open and your attention soft and let the body open as it will. Sometimes there'll be pleasure. There are people who are more afraid of pleasure than pain. You also, it's true, you also want to be able to learn to sit and feel that which is pleasurable. The healing of the body is the opening of the heart in the midst of it all. Stephen Levine, good friend and also Vipassana teacher, we've taught together a lot, works a great deal with people with life-threatening illnesses and death and dying. And most all of the healing work that he teaches is simply bringing mercy, tenderness, compassion to the places in the body that we've run away from, the disease, the wounds, the things that we've pushed out of our heart. There's a powerful article written by a Zen student some years ago 
who was born without her left arm. And she says, as a child, it was so terrible because either people would start coming up to her and saying, what's the matter with you? Kind of in a nervous way. Or even worse, were the children asking her what happened to her arm and their parents going, shh, don't talk about it. And that was the main thing. People didn't even want to look. So she didn't look, she said. And finally she went to this Zen center and you're supposed to sit with this kind of mudra, this hand gesture like this, only she had just one hand and she didn't know quite how to do it because it felt so awkward and no one there even talked to her about it. She sat for a couple of years and her body felt really out of kilter. Finally she got a little cushion to rest this one hand on. She said, I remember the first time I really looked at my arm I was 25 years old. For 25 years, she hadn't let herself look at that. That's true for all of us in some way. Do you know what I mean? Those places in ourselves that we've closed our eyes to, that we haven't want to touch or feel. And as we begin to sit, the body is there for us to re-inhabit to reopen, to touch the places that are most wounded or closed or fearful to us. One of the most beautiful images of the Buddha's enlightenment comes actually before his enlightenment. He was practicing, as most of you know, um, after he left uh, the palace, and he did six years of great ascetic practice. He said no one on earth had done more severe ascetic practice. He did as much as anyone could do it and not die. You know, beds of nails and lying out in the hot sun and fasting till he was emaciated and holding his breath until he almost died. Trying to beat his body into submission and get rid of his desires and get rid of his his grasping and get rid of his anger by force. And after doing it to the greatest extent that he could, one day he sat down and he had a vision come. He remembered sitting in his father's garden as a young man under a rose apple tree. And the memory came of sitting under that tree and sensing a well-being and a connectedness and a wholeness that he had never experienced in all his years of ascetic yogic practice. And somehow he remembered out of that that what he was seeking was not to fight against himself, but rather was here in honoring himself. And out of that vision, he stopped all his ascetic practice and took nourishment again, began to care for his body, and in a sense to love himself as that child in his father's garden. And from that place of wholeness and of respect and caring, then came his great enlightenment. As we sit and the body opens and there's a healing, there's a healing of the senses too, not just of the tightness and the places within us that we allow to open. We've been so busy in our lives seeking things. 
You know what George Bernard Shaw said, there are two great disappointments in life, not getting what you want and getting it, right? And so we've been so busy trying to get things. It's endless in some way. And in doing so, we lose touch with the world that's right here in front of us, that's so alive. We lose the sense of color and texture and taste because we're busy looking for something else. Someone was saying to Picasso once that he ought to make pictures of things the way they are, objective pictures, not what he was painting. He mumbled he wasn't quite sure what that was. So the person who was kind of complaining took a photograph of his wife out of his pocket and said, there, you see, that's a picture of how she really is. And Picasso looked at it and said, she's rather small, isn't she? And kind of flat. (laughs) And actually, we have done that in a way. When we get so busy in our lives, the world loses its vitality and its aliveness. Thoreau said, Many people go fishing for their whole lives without knowing that it's not fish that they're really after. And we're so busy doing these things that we lose the sense of the sky around us and the trees and the stars and what it's like to take a step or have a cup of tea and hear the clink of the spoon in the glass. You get that here because it's so silent. And feel the warmth of the cup in your hands because you're not listening to the radio at the same time, you know, and smell it before you drink it and have that tea come into all of your senses, your ears and eyes and nose and tongue. There's a kind of healing that comes just in reconnecting with the senses and the world around us. But it's hard to do also because when we reconnect with the world, we see immense sorrow. The warfare in Yugoslavia for no good purpose. It's just going to end up little countries, whether they kill each other or not, it's going to end up pretty much the same way. The, The kind of poverty that's unnecessary because there's enough wealth that we don't need to have children starving on this earth when you spend a trillion dollars a year on weapons the kind of loneliness and isolation. And we sense how much we and others have run away or hide. This is from a book on addictions. Addictions to substances, drugs and alcohol or processes, gambling, sex, workaholism, doesn't matter, usually have a meaning beyond our personal problem. The society in which we currently live needs addictions. Its essence fosters them. It fosters addictions because the best adjusted person in a technological society is the person who is not dead and not alive, just numb, a zombie. When you're dead, you're not able to do the work of the society. If you are fully alive, you're constantly saying no to many of the processes of the society, the racism, the polluted environment, the nuclear threat, the arms race, drinking unsafe water, and eating carcinogenic foods. 
Thus, it is in the interest of a technological society to promote those things that take the edge off, keep us busy with our fixes, and keep us slightly numbed out. Consequently, the society not only encourages addictions, it functions as an addict. But when we keep ourselves busy, running, addicted to speed, movement, wherever we're going, we miss life. If we're willing to let the sorrow in and see that which is here, then all around us we will also see the mystery, something precious. We can sense this other possibility of being alive the winter sky, the crunch of the snow under your feet, the forests, and your concern for the ozone and acid rain because you really see the trees and how important they are just to be able to see them. The food that you have, the granola they serve for breakfast, the apple that you eat at tea time. And just to touch that kind of beauty with your attention gives a kind of strength to face the suffering of the world, to care for it, to respond to it. Viktor Frankl wrote, We who lived in concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread, They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from us but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose our spirit, our attitude, in the face of any set of circumstances. So there's a kind of healing that comes when we open our eyes and our heart to the world around us, to its sorrows, to its joys, and to the mystery. It's a book I got recently that's called Children's Letter to to God, written in different children's handwriting, I guess collected at some variety of Sunday schools. I'll read you a few of their short letters that give you a sense of maybe that peace that can be reawakened here. Dear God, are you really invisible or is that just a trick? Lucy. Dear God, instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you got now? Jane. Dear God, how come you did all those miracles in the old days and don't do any now? Seymour. Dear God, if we come back as something, please don't let me be Jennifer Horton because I hate her. (laughs) Dear God, I'll bet it is very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. Man. couple more for you if I can find them. Um,
Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel wouldn't kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brother and me. Dear God, on Halloween, I'm going to wear a devil's costume. Is that all right with you? (laughs) Dear God, I didn't think orange went with purple until I saw the sunset you made on Tuesday. It was cool. Eugene. Dear God, I'm doing the best I can, Frank. So, there is this sense when we slow down and reconnect with our breath and our steps and our body and the difficulties in the world and the mystery of it, that something heals in us. Just as the body and the earth, our connection with it, can heal through practice, the attention and meditation can bring a healing to the heart. The Buddha called this a full awareness of feelings, the capacity to feel that which is pleasant and neutral and unpleasant. Like the mother of the world, our meditation brings us to feel the pain of the world that we're all given in our hearts and the joy of it. Now, just as when we stop moving and running around and being busy, there's pains and holding in the body that we encounter, so too often when we sit, in the heart we feel that which has been held, the unfinished business, a certain grief, the longing, the sorrows, the wounds that we carry with us. If I were to ask tonight, how many of you at this time are working with some great loss in your life or some grief? I have at other times. Usually a third or half of the people and the room will raise their hands. And the other half are in a period in between loss. It's a part of our life. The Buddha was asked once, or asked once, which do you think is more, O monks? He said, the waters of the four great oceans or the tears that you have shed in birth after birth after birth for the losses of things that you love, for parting with ones who are dear, for the sorrows you've seen. He said, greater are the tears you've shed than the waters in all the four great oceans. We are all a part of that ocean of tears. And to sit with it, to sit is to touch that part of our life, to discover how to honor it with compassion and attention. Jack Engler, who's a Vipassana teacher here and a friend and also a psychologist at Harvard, did his doctoral thesis on meditation and his, one of his main findings or suppositions was that a great deal of spiritual practice is really about grieving, about learning how to release and open and let go. That's the work of the heart in meditation. And it takes a lot of courage to let your heart be broken open.
What is the awakened heart? asks Chogyam Trungpa. The awakened heart of a warrior is the heart of tenderness and sadness. When you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. You find that you are looking into space. What are you? Who are you? Where is your heart? If you really look, you won't find anything tangible and solid in there. Of course, you might find something very solid if you have a grudge against someone or you've fallen possessively in love, but that's not the awakened heart. If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your rib cage and feel for it, there's nothing there except for tenderness. You feel sore and soft, and if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This kind of sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely open. It is like pure, raw meat. Even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. It is this tender heart of the warrior that has the power to heal and transform the world. When we sit and let ourselves open inwardly, we feel a lot of judgment how hard we've been on ourselves, what we think we've done wrong, what's been wrong with the world around us. Sitting on the judge's seat, in many places they wouldn't even hire you as a judge, you know. You'd have to go to Uganda under EDMN and maybe they'd give you a job, but not in any civilized country. You feel the grief that's there and the loss and then you wonder, how did this happen? Some of it's just the pain of being human. Some of it's the pain of a story I read at, at retreats of this 19-year-old medic sitting his first retreat and remembering what he saw 10 years before in Vietnam that he'd repressed because it was just so painful to see what humans do to one another. And some of it is kind of ordinary. Let me read you a poem. It's called Ordinary Heartbreak. She climbs easily onto the box that seats her above the swivel chair at adult height, crosses her young girl's legs, left ankle over right, and smooths the plastic apron over her lap while the beautician lifts her ponytail and mock mockingly says, this hair's as coarse as a horse's tail. Then, as if that's all there is to say, the woman at once whacks off and tosses its foot and a half into the trash, and the little girl who didn't want her hair cut, but long ago learned successfully how not to say what it is she wants, who even at this minute cannot quite grasp her shock and grief, is getting her hair cut, for convenience, her mother put it. The long waves gone, that had been evidence at night when loosened from their clasp that she might be secretly a princess. Rather than cry out, she grips her own wrist and looks to her mother in the mirror. But her mother is too polite or too reserved 
or too indifferent to defend the girl. So the girl herself takes up indifference while the pain follows a hidden channel to a place almost unknown to her in her body. Convinced as she is that her own emotions are not the ones her life depends on. She shifts her gaze from the mother's face back to the haircut now, so steadily as if this short-haired child she sees were someone else. We've been taught not to feel, and so we've closed down, and we've lost a connection with what we really care about. We've lost an acceptance of ourselves. Self-acceptance is probably half of spiritual life, if not all of it. And to pay attention carefully to the heart is to reawaken this capacity to feel and to value ourselves, to reawaken a trust of ourselves. One of the great temples that has been built in America in recent years is the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. More people go there than any other place in Washington. Five million people a year walk by that long black wall with 58,000 names on it, and they weep. I came down today to pay respects to two good friends of mine. These are notes people left there. Go down and visit them sometime. They're on panel 42, lines 22 and 26. I think you'll like them. Dearest Eddie Lynn, I'd give anything to have you shell just one more pecan for me on Grandma's porch. I miss you so much. All my love, your cousin Annie. Just wanted you to know I love you, brother. Still talk to Kathy and your babies. They're growing and proud of you. Somehow you're part of me. I'll watch over them for you as best I can. I'll see you soon. Just wanted to let you know everything's okay. This marks the second year I've come to the wall. I've seen the names of those I know, and yes, I've cried. My problem is I don't know the names of those I tried to help only to have them die in my arms. In Vietnam, at age 20, I was put in charge of a riverboat. Now every time I get on a boat, I only see the red blood running over the deck into the water. I try to take my two sons fishing but we never stay out long. The fish don't seem to bite when I take them out like they do when they go with someone else's father. They're too young to understand that their father does not like the reflections he sees in the water. For these reasons, I write to say I'm sorry. I did the best I could. To all you mothers and fathers and wives and sisters and lovers, I'm sorry. I could do no more. I wish I knew your names so I could touch them in the black stone, but I don't. I'm so sorry. Attached to this letter are my service medals. These belong to you and your family and friends. 
I don't need them to show I was there. I have your faces to remind me in my sleep. Rest well, my brothers. May the wind be to your backs and the sun in your faces. On the day we meet again, please do one thing. Tell me your names. It's a temple because people go there and they let themselves feel again in ways many haven't for a long, long time and reconnect with this mystery of life and death. It's a temple because it's a place somehow of forgiveness. That for a moment, we see that we're all in it together and we can forgive all the things that we've held back from for so long. Because in the end, really when you die, what matters? When you sit with someone who's dying and you have that privilege, someone who's been conscious in their life, and they look back, all that really matters is very simple. Did I love well? Did I really care for this life and the people around me? Did I live in a full way, in a free way? So there's a healing of the heart as we sit. There's a healing of the mind too, of all its conflict and tension and ideals and images. We have so many. My teacher Ajahn Chah used to say, we sit and we're at war. We're at war with what's right and what's wrong and courageously carrying on the battle with what's too short and what's too hot and what's too cold and all the ideas we have about things. One Hindu guru I studied with said, I don't understand you people. You never want what you have and you want what you don't have. And so you're unhappy. Why not reverse it? Why not want what you have and not want what you don't have? It's so simple. But we have all these ideas and the ideas of how things should be and the thoughts we have, they blind us. They keep us caught. Can I read you another poem? I will. This is about Oedipus. Remember him? Long afterwards, Oedipus and the Sphinx, part two. Long afterwards, Oedipus, old and blinded, walked the road. He smelled a familiar smell. It was the Sphinx. Oedipus said, I want to ask one question. Why didn't I recognize my mother? You gave the wrong answer, said the Sphinx. But that was what made everything possible, said Oedipus. No, she said, when I asked what walks on four legs in the morning, two at noon, and three in the evening, you answered man. You didn't say anything about woman. When you say man, says Oedipus, you include women too. Everyone knows that. She said, that's what you think. <laughs> we have all these ideas, and you sit and you'll see them, how your meditation should be, how your walking should be, how your breath should be, how your body should be, what you should be feeling. And the mind has endless stories, praise and blame, and every kind of archetype and possibility, and there's hatred and Hitler's in there, and there's the Bodhisattva of compassion, and Mother Teresa comes and says kind things, and a little while later you become petty again. Um, and it moves from one extreme to another. It has no pride. It will do anything. 
thinking, planning. It's what minds do. What would it mean to heal the mind? It is to sit and see its nature. We can cleanse or purify the mind in some way, train it a little bit, but the problem mostly is that we take it seriously. And when we do, it separates us, I, me, and mine. And we get enveloped in what is called the body of fear, which comes out of all those thoughts. The mind creates the abyss, the separation, and the heart crosses it. Healing of the mind is when we can hold in our hearts all that arises and sense a rest and a kind of goodness, a wholeness in us, where the thoughts come and the imaginations and the hopes and the fears. And we don't live in the mind, we rest in the heart and let the mind come and go as it will. This is discovering our Buddha nature. It's discovering something so fundamental to us that we often lose sight of it, the ground of our being from Thomas Merton. He says, there is in all things an inexhaustible sweetness and purity, a silence that is a fountain of action and joy. It rises up in wordless gentleness and flows out of us from unseen roots of all created being. The healing of the mind is to simply touch this place in us that can see all the stories and all the hopes and all the fears and all the imaginings and all the comparison, to see the sorrows and the joys of it and discover that the heart is a place of rest, that the heart is greater than all of those and learn the lesson all of those things bring us back to, to connect us to ourselves. This life is a test. It is only a test. If it had been an actual life, you would have received further instructions on where to go and what to do. Remember, this life is only a test. There's a Tibetan practice that I'll recommend to you this evening. Um, You might keep in mind, and this practice goes very simply, that you look around you in the world and you look in such a way that you recognize how every being that you encounter is already enlightened, that the entire world around you is enlightened, all except one being, that's yourself. And all the rest are the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of mercy and compassion who have appeared in these various forms to help you awaken. And so they do exactly the right thing to fulfill your awakening of patience and understanding and mercy and tenderness and uh, letting go and freedom. And the only person who is yet to awaken is yourself. So this is the healing of the mind, not by fixing the mind, but by dropping into the heart to a place that can hold all of that from rest and understanding. Healing of the body and the senses, of the heart, of the mind. And finally, the most amazing, wonderful healing, the center of the Buddha's awakening, is the healing of emptiness. You can feel it first just in the silence. 
how blessed in some way is the silence, how much it allows things to open, be felt, be touched, be received, and then to be understood. The Buddha said when he spoke that these five processes that make up the body and memory and perception and feelings, consciousness, these five processes are empty, empty of self, that our life is empty. What could this mean? Well, there's the story you may have heard many times of Mullah Nasruddin, Sufi, kind of wise man and fool, going into the bank to cash a check. And the cashier there says, can you please identify yourself? So he pulls a small mirror out of his pocket and says, yep, that's me, all right. (laughs) This is how we create our identity. Out of thoughts and images, we tell ourselves, I'm this way, this is who I am, this is who I've been, this is what I've learned, this is how I'm supposed to be. And we do this over and over. And then we create this sense of self and we protect it and hold on to it and guard it and try to make it look better than it is and feel ashamed of it. Do you know all those pieces? And yet underneath, when we listen, when we get still in the silence, we discover that there isn't a solid self at all. There's nothing in there we can say, that's me. Instead, there is a river, a process of changing feelings and changing thought and changing sensations, none of which we possess. Do you direct your thoughts? You've had a day of meditation. Surely you can't imagine that anymore, that your mind is in your control. Well, how about your feelings? Do you choose your feelings? Hardly ever. And your body, all right, don't grow old. Don't lose any more hair. You know, I look in the mirror and there, every few weeks there's less of it. And I say, come on, now no more, right? You just rent this body, you get it for a little while, and it lives its own life. You can care for it, but it's not who you are any more than your thoughts or your feelings. You don't own it. From Gandhi, he said, I have only three enemies. My favorite enemy, the one most easily influenced for the better, is the entire British Empire. My second enemy, the Indian people, is far more difficult. If you've ever been to India, you would understand that. But my most formidable opponent is a man named Mohandas K. Gandhi. With him, I seem to have very little influence. (laughs) So you sit, and if you really let yourself feel and pay attention, you see that we don't possess any of it, that it's not solid, and that the sense of our separate self is a fiction, that the more we try to hold and possess, the more we suffer. From Kalu Rinpoche, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you understand it, you will discover that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Amazingly simple. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know it. When you understand it, you will discover you are nothing. And being nothing, 
You are everything. That is all. The Diamond Sutra puts it this way, Thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, and a dream. There's this sense when you're silent and pay attention of life, thoughts arise out of nowhere and disappear into nowhere. Feelings come out of nowhere and disappear. Sensations arise out of the void and disappear. A whole day arises. In fact, 1991, just about over, right? One more day after this, I think that's it. Yeah, or two, and then gone. Where did it go? How about 1990, the 80s, the 60s? Gone, disappeared. Your childhood, all of that, it arises tentatively for a moment in some form, just this way once. It's not ours to possess. It's not who we are, this small being that we think, solid and separate. And when you open and listen more and more deeply, there comes instead of this sense of possession and separation, a kind of aliveness and interconnectedness, that we are the air that we breathe and share with the trees the oxygen and carbon dioxide, the sky, we're the products of our parents and we're the products of the krill in the oceans that the various other sea creatures eat that keep the cycle of life going and of the worms in the ground and the bees that pollinate all the plants that make it possible for us to eat food. We're all connected in this web of life. It's very precious and tentative. Each day is unique. Each person is unique for a moment this way and then a moment it changes. The astronauts understood this, these Russians who went to their, lived for six months in the space station, brought three fish up with them for an experiment to see how fish would do goldfish in weightlessness. And then after a month or two there, the fish started to die guess they didn't do very well without gravity. And they said, oh, how sorry we were to see it, how we cared for them, what we didn't do to try to save these three goldfish, how much they meant to us. Down on earth, we'd go fishing and think nothing of it. But when you're away from the earth and you see it in a distance, every form of life becomes so precious. And then when they landed back again, he talked about getting down on the earth and kneeling and touching his cheek to it and kissing the earth just to be back on this precious earth. The healing of emptiness comes when we discover not the small sense of ourself, of possession, when we see that we don't own even this body and mind, but find a place of peace and rest and great joy in the midst of all things, when we discover this eternal home. From Herman Hesse, let me see if I can find him here, in the midst of all of these books, yes, poem. He says, sometimes when a bird cries out, or the wind sweeps through a tree, 
or a dog howls in a far-off farm, I hold still and listen a long time. My world turns and goes back to the place where, a thousand forgotten years ago, the bird and the blowing wind were like me, were my brothers and sisters. To understand this emptiness out of which things come, this non-possessiveness, is a deep task in spiritual practice, not something you need to figure out from these words. But to come to sense it is to discover your home, the true place of rest, the place that is trustworthy, the trusting heart or the trusting mind. And in each of us, there is a deep longing for wholeness, for healing, to be connected with our bodies, to be connected with our hearts. We can sense a tremendous capacity for compassion and wakefulness and openness. So as we sit and walk and practice here, that's what's possible, a reclaiming of this, an awakening of this Buddha nature. You can sit, as Thich Nhat Hanh teaches, with a half smile on your lips, like all of the statues of the Buddha, just resting with a kind of dignity, halfway between heaven and earth, allowing the breath to come and go, allowing the sorrows of the heart and the beauties of the sky, and all of that which makes us human, and allowing a healing that comes when we bring awareness and respect to the breath, to the body, the heart and mind, and touch all of those things with compassion and wisdom. Meditation is not a passive activity, even though we seem kind of slow and quiet here. It's really a, a courageous thing, and it requires a lot of courage to sit still and not run away, to touch your sorrows, to open your eyes, to the pain of the world around us, the hungry children, the rainforests, the fact of all of our death, and to discover that which is timeless and eternal in the midst of all of that. It's a very great undertaking that we do here. And I want to encourage you to really give yourself to it, because that's the only thing that will satisfy your hearts. To give yourself doesn't mean to try and make it peaceful or get concentrated. Those two will come in their own season. But rather to bring the respect that that Zen master said of lifting up the cup and hearing the sound of the spoon when it clinks and smelling the tea and tasting it, feeling its warmth in your hands and placing it down with respect. To bring a steadiness and a respect and a caring attention to the breath, to your steps, to your body, to your heart. And out of that, all of that which is in you will open. You, like the Buddha, will discover the great heart of compassion and a freedom in the midst of all things. To end, I want to read you a poem that gives the spirit of meditation 
in a somewhat different vein. It's called duck meditation. Now we are ready to look at something pretty special. It is a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf as he cuddles in the swells. There's a big heaving in the Atlantic and he is part of it. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is and neither do you, but he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That is religion and the duck has it. How about you? So let's just sit for a minute. As you sit, feel the breath (coughs) with a receptive and caring attention, this life breath. to touch with healing every part, every cell of your being. Be aware of your heart, of its joys and its sorrows the grief and longing, beauty that's there, the pain and the things unfinished. And sense how that too can be held in your attention, in the heart of your awareness, opened, received. 
Notice all the thoughts of the mind that come and go. Just let them come and go. No problems. No struggle with it. Let yourself be open and empty, allowing all things to arise and pass, feeling the ground of emptiness, the space of emptiness that is full of all things. Peaceful. restful. Then come back again simply to your breath, just this breath. That simple. Resting in the breath. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.